Hey everyone, my name is Brad and I'm one of the pastors at our Town Center campus. I want to thank you for joining us, tuning in during very strange times. It's a strange time to live, it's a strange time to find community. Uh, it's difficulty. There's a lot of difficulty. People seem to be divided in their opinions, very sm- very strong opinions. There's a lot of fear and uncertainty. So Merry Christmas. Uh, as I mentioned last week, the times that we are living in actually help us understand Advent, truly. Uh, for many of us, it's just a section on our, on our kind of Christmas calendar. We rarely really think about it. Um, and uh, we just think of it kind of as a time that comes before Christmas. But the point of Advent season is actually preparation. It's actually yearning. Advent literally means arrival, and what we reflect on during Advent is our great need for Christ to come and make things right. And this is exactly the cry of the early church. It was the exact cry of the churches that received the letter of, of Revelation written by the Apostle Paul. He was in exile, he was pastoral, so he was worried about the resilience and and he was concerned for the the comfort of the church that he loved and was praying for. And the very message of comfort that it was meant to deliver almost 2,000 years ago is the same message that it wants to deliver to all who read it and all who give their allegiance to Jesus. I am coming soon, Jesus is saying, and things are bigger than they seem. So today we're going to be looking at Revelation 2, 8 to 11. If you have a Bible open, you can read along. Otherwise, it'll be here on the screen. Revelation 2, 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Guys, we're... A month into our series, The Great Awakening, Living in Light of Revelation, looking at the revelation of John, the book of Revelation, which literally uh, a literally, a revela- is a revelation excuse me, from Jesus Christ as he is now, above his creation. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypse. Uh, and apocalypse has been given a, a bad rap in the last century, in the last couple of years. Today, when we hear the word apocalypse, we think zombie apocalypse. We think of the end of all things. But the word apocalypse or apocalypsis in the Greek simply means unveiling. It's, it's as if there's a, uh, this great story that's taking place behind a curtain, a story that when it's understood and, and accepted, it changes everything about how we live our lives, about how we live as disciples of Jesus, the cosmic Christ, who is king over all creation. So apocalypse does not mean the end. It actually means the beginning, it, beginning to see things as, as they truly are, bigger than they seem in our, in our current circumstance. To a church that was feeling the pressure of the world, this was a letter to be resilient and strong and hold on to the faith, to not give up on Jesus and not give in to the world, to keep your eyes on the Lamb, to not be frightened or caught up in the the vision or promises of the beast. Notice that with each letter to the churches, we are reminded of this cosmic Christ that is delivering this message. It's not guesswork or advice from a sage. These are words of the first and the last who died and who was resurrected, who came back to life. These are the words of the ancient 
one, the eternal son of man, of whom death did not have the final say, and in whom we find our eternal hope. And this Jesus, this Jesus gives a message to John while he's on the Isle of Patmos in exile to deliver to the churches of of his day. Seven churches, a symbolic number to represent all churches. And you'll find as we go through uh, these, not just these first few chapters, but more of the apocalypse of John, that it's, it's entirely, this is a message not to some future church, but the church eternal in every age, in fear of the powers of the world and in danger of submitting to its promises. So last week we looked at at Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus, warning them to to nurture their first love and to continue to nurture a love for truth. Why? Because regardless of what seems to them as insurmountable odds, the church will persevere. Because Jesus sees, he knows, he holds creation and its history, and and it's telos, the telos of creation is moving towards his complete reign over all of creation. So today we look at Jesus' apocalypse to a different church, the church in Smyrna, also in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. And the interesting thing here is that Smyrna has no critique. They're doing very well, but they are suffering. Smyrna was a wealthy town, but the Christians in the town, Jesus says, you're poor. I I know you're poor. And they were. They were boycotted. They were persecuted. Some had their homes plundered. It was, it was open season on Christians in Smyrna. And on top of that, they were not welcome in, in the market because although they honored the emperor, they would not worship him. And to do so meant that they were unable to run businesses. So they were, in fact, poor. And much like what we've seen already, the, the way that Jesus approaches the church is to tell them about himself and, and reveal more about himself to remind them that their security does not come from political means or religious tenacity, but it comes from him. So he reminds them. He says, John, introduce me this way in verse 8. Tell this to the angel or the messenger to the church of Smyrna. Write this. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Smyrna, he says, CA Church, he says, we need to remember that Jesus' reign is all-encompassing. His reign is all-encompassing. The words that he delivers to this church, the word that he delivers to us today in the Tri-Cities are from the first and the last who died and came to life. We mentioned a few weeks ago that we need to have a grasp on the Old Testament if we want to interpret the book of Revelation. And here's an example. This great statement of eternality belongs to the eternal God in the, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. In Isaiah 41, verse 4, it says, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. In Isaiah 43, verse 10, it says, You are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Again in Isaiah 44, verse 6, it says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. 
So for Jesus to the church in Smyrna nearing the turn of the first century and with persecution at the door, he is proclaiming that he is the beginning and the end. Our lives are bracketed by Christ from, from eternity past to eternity future. Daryl Johnson says it this way. He says, our lives as followers of the first and last, our stories are grafted in and find themselves within the story of the great cosmic Christ. He says our lives are boundaried in him. They're boundaried in him, the first and the last. Whatever else happens in our history and whatever else happens in my history, Jesus is there as the first word and Jesus will be there as the last word. And Jesus is there in the middle with the word that gives life. That's the simple truth for us. If you belong to Jesus, your worst story is not your last story. So we need to listen to him. And we also need to remember that this cosmic Christ, as we mentioned before, this cosmic Christ, Jesus is near. He says in verse 9, I know your tribulation. I know the pressure and the pain, he says. The word for, for tribulation is the Greek thlipsis. Thlipsis, learn that one. It means crushing pressure. And John uses it, Jesus uses it in in. in, in in, in, this, in this book to talk about the horrible pain that is on early, early believers. John uses it in chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the thlipsis, in tribulation. So Jesus says, I, I know. I know what you're going through. And how does he know? Well, first, he has an intimate knowledge of this church's suffering. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, the, the image in chapter 1 is of a cosmic Christ, but he, a cosmic Christ who is present and walking among his lampstands, which represent the churches. With piercing eyes, he sees what his churches suffer. He's aware and has an intimate knowledge of all that we suffer as a church and what you suffer as an individual. But more than that, Jesus has an intimate knowledge of personal suffering. As Bruce Shelley says, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. Guys, we do not serve a savior who does not understand suffering. Jesus says, I see it. I know it. Jesus understands the loss of loved ones to the darkness of death. He understands rejection by those who called him friends once. He understands family rejection. He understands physical, emotional, yes, and even spiritual suffering. When Jesus is at the height of his suffering on the cross, he cries out, it says in Matthew 27, 46, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lema sebekthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's, there's a brokenness that Jesus experiences on the cross. He experiences the burden of the sins of humanity, ripping him away from God the Father. Jesus understands every aspect of human suffering. The sufferings, the tribulation that the church of Smyrna is going through is familiar to Jesus. These are the very sufferings that Jesus experienced. Slander from the religious leaders of the day. I mean, you, you can't read a page of the Gospels without an encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders who would challenge him on the kingdom that he was proclaiming. This is happening to the early church. He says to the church in Smyrna that that's being slandered by those who claim to be, to be Jews, to have a special relationship with God that the gospel, the gospel, they said, could not fully equal. Smyrna had the largest population of religious Jews outside of Jerusalem in, his, in, in this day. But, but Jesus calls this group the synagogue of Satan. Wow. Jesus, meek and mild. <laughs> They're a synagogue of Satan, he says. Literally a community of lies. 
of lies. Those who found pride in their, in their ancient association with the God of Scripture rather than the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. And they've been belittling the church in Smyrna like religious schoolyard bullies, teasing them and, and pressuring them to drift from the gospel and the Christ that they love. Jesus knew that kind of persecution. And on top of that, Jesus says, you, you're, that's not all you're going to have. You're about to be thrown into prison. Things are about to get worse for you. Jesus understood this too. Think of Jesus waiting in the garden of Gethsemane, waiting to be taken to prison and, and praying for strength from God the Father, asking his disciples to pray with him and feeling alone. Jesus understood the fear of the power of Rome. He understood the fear of being taken in in, in the night by soldiers to be falsely accused and tortured. The outside pressure of the world to give in or suffer the consequences is not foreign to Jesus, our Savior. The temptation to give in is not foreign to him either. In Hebrews 4.15, we're reminded we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he's without sin. So whatever you're walking through, Jesus is not ignorant of your story. He's near. We need to remember that. We also need to remember that Jesus is faithful in our suffering, that Jesus is faithful to us in our suffering. He says a statement that I, I don't think we grasp the power of, uh, power of it at first glance. We're so used to these kinds of statements. We need to meditate on them. In chapter 10 of verse 2, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He says you'll be thrown into prison for 10 days, probably not a literal 10 days. 10 implies a, a limited time uh, of trial. This is kind of taken from Daniel. In Daniel 1, where, where Daniel and his friends are in the service of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and they refuse to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine, they're given 10 days to show that their own diet is sufficient for health. And Daniel says to the, to the king's servant, Daniel chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then in verse 14 of Daniel chapter 1, it says, So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them them for 10 days. Well, since the first few chapters of Revelation has been drenched in references to the book of Daniel, and because Revelation is full of the symbolism of Daniel, including the use of Babylon to speak of, of the Roman Empire, Jesus is saying to the church, you'll be tested for a time in prison, and there, there will be a time of suffering, but it will not last. It will be thlipsis. It will be, it will be horrible trial, like a crushing pressure, but he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Do you see how the gospel flips things on its head? I will give you the crown of life if you are faithful to death. Things are not as they seem. Things are bigger than they seem. He says in verse 10, stay faithful to me. Now, what would have been nice and I know the church in Smyrna would have been happy to hear it, would have been for Jesus to say, things are about to get rough, but don't worry, I'll take care of you. Things are rough, I see it, I'll stop it. But that's not what he says. He says, stay faithful to death. Now, if I was in Smyrna, I'd be like, is there another option? Did we do something wrong? Are you angry with us? But remember, Jesus has no critique for the church in Smyrna. They seem to be doing everything right. So this is not a correction. This is not a discipline. 
And it's a, a not, a, not a matter of you reap what you sow. This is not a natural outcome of bad choices from the church. On the contrary, what it seems to be, and this is hard for us to grasp, what it seems to be is a natural outcome of, perse- of persecution because they are doing things right. That they're going to suffer because they're doing things right. This is the part of following Jesus we tend to gloss over, but Revelation highlights and reminds us of over and over again. Authentic discipleship will result in tribulation. It's not something we escape by following Jesus. It's something we gain by following Jesus. He roars like a lion, but he is the suffering lamb. The pathway of the lamb to the throne was suffering and a cross. Why would the path of those who follow him look any different from their king? Paul reminds one of his uh, young pastors, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus made it clear. Aligning with him over the world, choosing him over the world would mean difficulty. In Matthew 5.10, we're familiar uh, with with the blessings that, that Jesus hands out. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that persecution and trial are the best tools for spiritual growth. He says in his letter to an early church in James 1, 2-4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." See, but this idea brings up an important question, several important questions. Should Christians, should the church ever be comfortable and free of persecution? Is that good for the church? Should Christians fight for rights and laws that bring them more comfort and prestige in the world? What kind of disciples grow in a society that shows them favor? Those are important questions to ask in light of the fact that our first political association and affiliation is to the suffering lamb. Lastly, we need to remember that because Jesus is the beginning and the end, he has put death to the test and proven its deficiency over his power. Because Jesus is near, because he is faithful, we need to remember this and take joy in this, that evil is on a leash. Evil is on a leash. Because evil is on a leash, although you appear poor, ultimately you are rich. You have an untouchable inheritance in Christ because evil is on a leash. Prison, John says, Jesus says, will be temporary. These trials will be temporary because evil is on a leash. Although death seems like the end, it is actually the beginning. See, because Christ is our king and also our model, we know that after the cross comes resurrection. That after suffering comes glory. After faithfulness unto death comes the crown of life. The one who conquers and perseveres, he says, will not be hurt by the second death. That's the call of allegiance to the Lamb of God. For Smyrna, it was a call of resistance against the powers that told them to give in and give up. That their faith was a hindrance to fortune and even a hindrance to life. So go with the flow of the empire. Offer your worship to the emperor. 
and you'll get your house back, you'll get your job back, you'll get your family back. It's like a, a country song in reverse. For you and I, I, I would say this. In the time of COVID, how will we stand when the test gets tougher? There is a lot of disagreement about churches being asked to close doors for a while. Well, we, well, we get a lid on the spread of COVID. And I've read and witnessed Christians pulling their hair out that we have been asked for the sake of our society to do these kinds of things. And, and I don't like it. I'll be honest. Of course, I, I want to meet. Of course I want to meet. I'm a, I'm a pastor and an extrovert. But I, I would find it very comical to have a Christian living in the time of COVID in 2020 to step into the first century in the history of the church, maybe the history of the church anywhere outside of the Western Hemisphere, and say, you wouldn't believe the persecution that we are getting. We are being told to wear masks and being told we can't meet in our big buildings, in our church buildings. Imagine taking all your frustration about our liberties being taken away today and try to explain them to John on the Isle of Patmos praying for the churches in Asia Minor who are being killed and imprisoned for their allegiance to Christ. My guess, my guess is that John's first question would probably be, what's a church building? But his second question might be, what do you mean by the word persecution? Persecution. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. See, many of us wonder, I wonder, how well I might stand up in the confidence and the power of the risen lamb if I experience real, real difficult, really difficult trial, real flipsis. But I'll tell you, a glimpse of how well we will trust God and live in hope in future trial is seen in how well we trust God and live in hope in present trial. What does allegiance to the Lamb look like? I think it doesn't look like fear and paranoia in uncertain times. I think it doesn't get thrown off that the, the world is, is against the kingdom of the Lamb. We shouldn't get thrown off by that. That's the promise and that's the, the method. It's the path of discipleship, Scripture tells us. Revelation tells us. The Lamb upon the throne, the cosmic Christ, our Lord and Savior, Jesus' reign is an all-encompassing reign. He is near. He knows the struggles of His church. He is faithful. And evil is on a leash. It will not have its final say. It will have its time and then it will be no more. No injustice will be unseen by the all-seeing eyes of the cosmic Christ. No kingdom or power will outlast his eternal kingdom. So we never need to respond to world concerns, whether they are pol political or pandemic, like frightened, cornered animals, worrying about winning arguments on Facebook or on other social media. Rather, we are invited in light of all that is being unveiled in this apocalypse to let the love of God and the peace of God of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit empower us to love and good works because the King is on his throne. Church, I love you and I miss you. God bless you.